Last November, just a few blocks from where we're sitting this morning, a young man named Kobe Yandel was arrested by the police for criminal trespassing. He had been sleeping in a parking garage. And for theft, he had lifted a bottle of iced tea from Fred Meyer. That bottle would have cost $1.69 if he'd paid for it, but because Kobe is schizophrenic and he resisted arrest, that bottle also cost him over 50 days in the Multnomah County Jail, where he waited in limbo before being charged for a bed to open up at Oregon State Hospital in Salem. According to Oregon State law, defendants who are deemed unfit to appear before a judge are required to undergo psychiatric treatment and evaluation. And the law says that's supposed to happen within seven days of their arrest. So it's supposed to work. It's rarely practiced that way. You might have been following this in the news. The Oregonians have been doing a series of pieces on this law and the way that it's being flouted. And a Washington County Circuit Court judge has found the state of Oregon in contempt of court for its failure to observe this seven-day rule and instead house people in jail cells for 50, 60, 70 days at a time before they're charged with a crime or able to appear before a judge. And everybody can see the problems with this, right? Nobody thinks that the best place for a severely mentally ill person is in a jail cell. But the Oregon State Hospital is woefully overcrowded. The state blames prosecutors and judges for using the criminal justice system to deal with mental health issues at extraordinary taxpayer cost. We're facing our own version of this quandary here at Trinity. Just about every week at our Wednesday lunch or at the food pantry door, somebody has a meltdown in the courtyard, starts screaming. We call 911 because that's what we've been told to do by the authorities. Given the location of Kobe's arrest, and I can imagine looked very much like the ones I've seen in our courtyard, he was just a couple blocks from here when he was arrested, so it's entirely possible that he had been earlier that day at our food pantry, that he was one of ours, that he is a part of our Wednesday community meal. He's a young man who has been in and out of the foster care and the criminal justice systems for most of his 21 years, a young guy who struggles with demons named and unnamed, a legion of challenges, and a diagnosis that often manifests itself in ways that look eerily like the nameless man from Jerasa in today's story from Luke's Gospel. Luke says that the citizens of Jerasa deal with the problem that their society names as demonic possession by keeping the victim under guard, bound with chains and shackles. That is what we do with aberrant behavior. Whether society names it as mental illness or as demonic possession, we push it to the margins, we attempt to lock it up, keep it bound with chains and shackles until it breaks free once again and goes running amok in the city streets. It's a catch-and-release game, a cycle that never ends. And as the state lawyer said in circuit court just a few weeks ago when faced with this problem, we have no solution. We have no solution. The hospitals are full, the jails are full, the prisons are full, the shelters are full. According to more than one national study, Oregon has the worst mental health crisis in the nation right now. The, st the statistics are pretty staggering. Our demons are legion, and the more I see of our 21st century response to mental illness, the more I wonder if this supposedly antiquated language of demon possession is really all that passé. I mean, the contemporary framework of diagnosis and medication doesn't seem to be working all that well either, especially when it's coupled with a severely dysfunctional healthcare and criminal justice systems. We, you know, don't do exorcisms anymore. We just lock people up. 
I'm not suggesting that exorcisms like the one that Jesus performs in Luke are necessarily a better answer, although in your Episcopal trivia moment for the day, we do have a means for doing them if the situation uh, uh, requires it. This is the Book of Occasional Services. It's a little kind of addendum to the Book of Common Prayer that lives in the sacristy because only priests really need to use it. And right there on page 174, concerning exorcism, the practice of expelling evil spirits by means of prayer and set formulas derives its authority from the Lord himself who identified these acts as signs of his messiahship. In accordance with this established tradition, those who find themselves in need of such a ministry should make that fact known to the bishop. Well, there you are. We're a church that doesn't even know if we believe in demonic possession, but we have a rubric for dealing with it that is very on brand for Episcopalians. Talk to the bishop. That's the, that's the solution. I don't know that that's necessarily a better answer, right? I, I certainly don't know of a lot of cliff-bound swine herds standing available, and I'm not necessarily confident that pigs are more effective than jails when it comes to dealing with legion. And legion is still very much with us. Let's not pretend that we are any more enlightened in our means of dealing with mental illness than the citizens of Palestine and Israel were a couple thousand years ago. The diagnosis and the treatment plans have changed, but society's response to these presenting symptoms look pretty much unchanged to me. We treat mental illness exactly the same way that they were treating it in Jerasa. We treat it with chains and shackles. But the line in this story that sends a chill up my spine, though. It's actually not the writer's eerily accurate description of what to me sounds like dissociative identity disorder rather than demonic possession. What chills me is the way that Luke tells what happens in the town after Jesus performs the exorcism and sends this guy's demons careening off a cliff. The swineherds go into town, they tell everybody what's happened, everybody comes out to where Jesus and the guy are. Presumably they're worried about their livelihood, right? That, that herd of pigs was probably that town's economy. And they find this man who they knew, right, who had formerly been possessed. He's, a, he's probably a member of their town, right? We assume this is a town of like 75 to 150 people. So everybody in town knows this guy. Probably half of them are related to him. And you expect them to rejoice, right? The one who was lost has been restored to health. Luke says they found him sitting at the feet of Jesus clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. They're terrified. Their response is to ask Jesus very politely to get out of town as quickly as possible. I mean, I think that's the most like, honest and insightful bit of this whole story, especially in a, a state and a culture lost in the throes of a mental health crisis that is reaching epidemic proportions. It's a parable, if you like, about a first century town that has been wringing its hands for decades, only to discover after he's taken from them that they actually needed the possessed man. Something about this healing causes at least the leaders of this town to realize that they were getting something out of their demoniac. This violent relationship with the guy in chains, the guy who shouts and carries on, who tears off his clothes, does damage to himself, runs and hides in the tombs of the ancestors, feeding on bones and carrion. He's their scapegoat. Right? He's their shadow side. He's the symbol of everything dysfunctional about their lives and their families, the darkness that they each somehow recognize deep down. Everybody in Jerasa has a demon. This is just the one that they shackle. And so their response, as it is in every highly structured society, is to shove all of that onto one victim. No wonder he has a legion of demons. He's got everybody's demons. He's carrying them all around. They lock him up, they throw, him into, throw away the key, and then they feel horribly about how there's nothing that can be done. We have no solution. Right? That's what they say. We have no solution. Until somebody comes along and does something, performs this deed of power that drastically unsettles the power balance. 
And when the townspeople see the results of Jesus' solution to this problem, they run him out of town. I mean, somebody has come into their midst who is naming demons and setting people free, and the citizens of Gerasa are terrified by that. I don't think they're ready, I don't think they're sure that they're ready to be called out in quite that way. I don't think they're ready for this degree of freedom. Psychological disorders, like demonic possessions, don't exist in a vacuum, right? They exist in societies that require this particular means of scapegoating, this particular means of catch and release, in order to maintain some kind of order. And stories like this one from Luke's Gospel hold up this uncomfortable mirror to another Jerasa, a town very much like Portland, with an equally parasitic relationship with our possessed ones, the ones that we keep locked up, the ones that we protect with chains and shackles for their own good, the ones who live in our tombs. We need them. We require their dysfunction for our functioning. We have a whole industry built around diagnosing them and containing them and adjudicating their cases and managing their medication. Mental health is something between 113 and 150 billion dollars a year, depending on how you calculate. I mean, you think we wouldn't be afraid if somebody walked into our national tombs and started naming and exercising those demons? You think we wouldn't be terrified if the two and a half million incarcerated people were suddenly sitting among us, clothed and in their right minds? There is nothing more threatening to a well-ordered society than taking away its scapegoats and setting them free to tell their stories. That's a terrifying thing to contemplate. That is the business Jesus is in, unsettling this dysfunctional relationship between captors and their captives and inviting both parties, the stigmatized and the, the terrified, the cared for and the caretaker, the deranged and the arrangers, everybody who is complicit in this system into a different way of being together, something that looks like wholeness, restored, redeemed community, family, right, where even the possessed have a place on the table. And we don't live in that world. We don't live in a free world. I'm not sure that more government funding is going to get us there, although that's certainly not a bad place to start. But this is a spiritual crisis, I think, not just an economic one, not just a political one. And I wonder what a, what a 21st century version of Jesus' deed of power would look like. I mean, God knows this, the church has done just as much damage here as anybody has. We're pretty culpable in this. We depend on the socially downtrodden, don't we? We feed hundreds of people every year, and we feel really good about it. Social ministry is a place of, a source of deep pride for this community, and rightly so. It's something that we're good at. And the need has never been greater, right? And sometimes I wonder if there's a way in which we are, out of the best of intentions, enabling demons by refusing to name them in order to keep ourselves safe. I mean, I see these possessed ones every day. They crowd into our courtyard. They keep watch over our property at night. They sleep in our doorways. They line up to receive our leftovers. And for every one of these vulnerable, frightened ones on the streets, there is Another one of us who lives in a middle-class home and gets a paycheck every month and remembers to vote in local elections and tips her waiter and smiles at the grocery checker. I'm one of those. I know many of you are one of those. We're no strangers to mental illness. I mean, call it whatever you want to. We're no strangers to being held captive. I mean, there are differences, right? There are, there are lots of mitigating factors that separate Kobe Yandel's story from my story. But he and I are in the same boat in so many ways. Kobe was one of ours. 
He was one of us. And we threw him into a jail cell because he stole a bottle of iced tea from Fred Meyer. And when he was confronted about it, his demons came out to play. And his demons are not that different from my demons. I know how to keep mine a little bit better hidden so that maybe Jesus won't see them and I can keep them around a little bit longer because at some level I'm convinced that I need them. I mean, do you really want to be free? That's the, that's the implied question in this story. Do you really want to be free? And the, the man in Garasa does, right? Boy, does he ever. Kobe Yandel, I suspect, would probably say the same thing. He longs to be free. Not the townspeople. I mean, if they answer that question honestly, I suspect they'll say something like I would say if you asked me honestly, which is that I'm not always sure that I am ready for the kind of freedom that Jesus is offering. The status quo is way more comfortable for me. It's a lot easier to throw up my hands and say, we have no solution. There is a little bit of good news in this story. What happened in Kobe Yandel's case, for now, is that the system worked in his favor. His sister, in an impassioned plea to the judge, got permission for him to be released from jail and evaluated at the Unity Center that Legacy Emanuel runs over in Northeast Portland. From there, the plan was he would be released into the custody of his family in California. They had arranged treatment for his schizophrenia while he awaits trial. At first, the judge wasn't sure that Kobe was going to agree to this plan. Maybe he wasn't sure he was ready for freedom either. His sister was not allowed access to him to try to talk him into it. But she was permitted to send him a note. She scribbled it on the back of a little pink registry slip at the jail entryway. It's all caps. It's four short sentences. She said, I love you. Come to court. I'll be there. We're taking you home. <laughs> 